Hello everybody and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. And thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. This is personally going to go down as one of my favorite episodes. This is an episode with Steve Cannon. Who might you ask is Steve Cannon? I'm glad you asked. Well, let me give you a story. I wanted to do a story, or a podcast, I should say, not a story, podcast on dead malls. I still want to do a podcast about dead and dying malls. Well... I put out a Reddit ad, and lo and behold, Steve Cannon answered. Who might you ask is Steve Cannon? Steve Cannon started the, what is today believed to be the oldest music magazine website on the internet in the world. He started it back in 1992 at the age of 17. That website is called Vibrations of Doom. Vibrations of Doom is a very influential magazine in the metal community. If you go on Wikipedia and just do a a search for Vibrations of Doom, you will see many bands list Vibrations of Doom as the thing that got them into heavy metal. It was an honor to talk to Steve. It's an honor to talk to all of my guests, but it was a true honor to talk to Steve. I grew up reading Vibrations of Doom because I... I'm a heavy metal fan. You know, I'm sure lots of people can remember when they met their musical tribe for the first time. I can remember um, meeting mine for the first time. I was sitting in a room in my aunt's house and I heard the song Orion by Metallica. I guess I was 12 or 13 years old. You know, not to be too dramatic about it, but let's just say that, you know, I've been a heavy metal fan ever since. And soon thereafter, We had the internet at our house, and I guess, I don't know, I heard about Vibrations of Doom from somebody in high school. I had no idea that the guy who did it was not that much older than me. I I didn't know that until now. Um, I'm actually going to present this podcast portion of this episode 
essentially unedited because I want people to hear the moment that I realized, or that he told me that he did the Vibrations of Doom website. Um, you know, they, they say picking picking children, picking favorite children is a terrible thing to do and you shouldn't do it. And, I, you know, I've done some pretty amazing podcasts. I've, I've done podcasts that do fairly well at least as far as I can see in the rankings or with the numbers. But, and I've, I've done episodes that I'm proud to put out and I'm proud to educate people on on different issues in this world and have different people tell me their story. I'm proud to do that. And I, I can think of a few right now. Um, I was actually, um, tonight, talking to a buddy of mine about about my podcast and my basic philosophy with as far as podcasting goes I don't believe podcasts really should be edited and the reason I don't believe that primarily is because to me it's an oral history recording and every once in a while, you know, especially somebody like the guy in Bosnia or the young lady in Venezuela, I feel like I'm disrespecting these people to not include all of what they say and all of the environment because I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it. And... I want you to hear this because this guy has been a content creator for longer than some of my listeners have been alive. And I just, to me, the, the most amazing thing about it, I mean, okay, if, if you've never done content creation, if you've never added anything like a thing to the internet, as far as content goes. You know, you're just doing this in a room. And okay, fine. You have Google SEO. Sure. But you don't really know. Like, you don't really know how uh, how much what your penetration is or or how many people you're reaching or even whatever with, with a thing like a podcast. But to hear him tell it, it must be amazing to have rock stars talk to you and say, yeah, man, I got into this because of you, and I'm going to go out there on this stage and, and talk to people and sing to people because of you. And, you know, thank you. That must be incredibly humbling. Um, and I just got a snippet of that from his Wikipedia page. And it just blew me away. I mean, just all the people who claim, who say, you know, Vibrations of Doom introduced me to heavy metal. That's amazing. 
Anyway, why is this a history? Well, it's a history because I'm doing a history of now. And it's also a history because, like he says, he's one of the earliest um, web pages on the internet. As far as, you know, the, I guess, the regular folks. Okay, um, a little bit of housekeeping. I've been super busy. Um, I have podcasts in the can I'm going to release, uh, fairly soon, but I thought I'd release this one as kind of a, a special Christmas treat. Um, and thank you folks. Uh, thank you for coming on this ride with me as, as a as a podcaster, this this is deeply humbling, and I, I truly, truly mean that. Um, thank you so much. Please, please enjoy what I think of as an oral history about the early, early days of the internet. You know, the early times of the internet. Um, thank you so much, and um. I want him to come back, and, and you'll see why. He's a, he was a very engaging person to talk to, and he has the the history of the internet. This guy saw. I mean, he started his website at seventeen, and it's still going on. It's it's like I said, the uh, oldest continuously going uh, music news magazine as he calls it, on the internet. And anyway, so this is my podcast with Steve Cannon, and uh, also known as the Vibrations of Doom podcast. And I'm also going to leave a link to his his website, which if you're into metal at all, it's, you know, it's a very fascinating history both of metal and of the internet anyway folks um merry christmas everybody everybody who celebrates i I realize i have a global audience and but merry christmas to all who celebrate and this is my christmas present to y'all okay as always i'm having a good day and i hope you are too bye-bye now this call is now being recorded. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Kitchings, and you're listening to the History Voyager. And I'm here with Stephen, and I thought we'd talk about, well, you know, lots of stuff, heavy metal and dead malls and all kinds of things. And you and I both used to live in Savannah. So, yeah, true. <laughs> so how did you get interested in dead malls, first of all? Well, you know, I was originally born and raised in Savannah. Um, I was born in 71 there, and uh, I lived in Savannah most of my life. Um, I just, uh, you know, the, the malls were always an interesting place to hang out at. And uh, about, I'd say, close to 20, 22 years ago, um, the music scene in Savannah just wasn't as developed as it is up in metro Atlanta. And so I decided, I actually started a music magazine here in Savannah, 
called Vibrations of Doom magazine. It was online uh, in 1992, and uh, 29 years later, it is still the world's oldest and longest-running Internet-based music publication on the planet. I actually incorporated the... Yeah, I actually incorporated Doom Radio into that about 16 years ago. Um, I've done a lot of things in and around the metro Atlanta area. Um, I've been in three bands. I'm currently doing my own band. I've guest hosted at WREK, which was 91.1, the Georgia Georgia Tech College radio station. And actually, uh, before I called you, I'm getting ready to put together a goth industrial playlist for a show that I'm doing uh, tomorrow night. It's the first ever goth industrial show outside of the perimeter. And anybody that lives near Atlanta understands inside the perimeter and outside the perimeter. So very, very involved with music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we all understand inside and outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's that's interesting. Um I t- I tell you, man, the mall situation, I feel like uh around two thousand started around two thousand. Or, you know, that was kind of the high point and then there was just sort of this gradual decline. Yeah, I've kind of seen that a lot. Actually, the decline really for me started, um, I remember the Goldmine Arcade in the Oglethorpe Mall, and that was like this big arcade. The first time I'd ever played in a sit-down uh, arcade game where you actually move the joystick and the entire cabinet moves with you, and that ended up being Space Harrier, one of my favorite arcade games. And it seems like once the arcades gave way to the consoles, to me, that's kind of when you started seeing the decline. I mean, there were very few arcades anymore. Um, nowadays, they combine pinball arcades and bowling and 40 other different things to try to get people in there. Because, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is the consoles, you know, at first when you had the – I grew up on the Intellivision. Um, there were people in my neighborhood that had an Atari, but, uh, you know, I like the better graphics. And it, it was it was to a time where you had to go to the arcade because you really couldn't recreate that experience at home. But – you know, now with emulators and PCs and, and, you know, you can play all the original arcade games right on your cell phone, you know, with a little portable joystick attached. And, you know, yeah. nobody really needed to go to arcades anymore. The arcades had kind of moved into people's homes. And, and to me, I think that's when the mall started to decline is when everybody realized, you know, I don't want to fight traffic and, and have to weave my way around 30,000 people. I'd rather just shop at home for what we want, you know. I think you're right. But I think it was a more, it was a far more gradual decline. Hmm. You know, like, like I can remember being a kid, um, when Amazon first, no, maybe not when it first came out, but pretty early. Yeah, they were still and, selling books. <laughs> right. And I remember telling my uncle, I mean, I was like 14, 15, something like that. I remember telling my uncle, I was like, you know, I don't understand, you know, now that you can do this, I bet this will take over. And he said, um, something to the effect of, uh, no, people are always going to want to go to the mall and, and yeah. see stuff. And I mean, and that's, you know, that's not by and large, that's not really how it plays out. No, and, it isn't. Well, yeah. Well, you got to yeah. think too. I've I actually I frequent the Sugarloaf Mills Mall in Duluth, which is uh, yeah. it's actually pretty it's a pretty happening mall. They have declines too, but no nowhere near the level of what you might see at the Gwinnett Place Mall and the Savannah Mall. Um, it, and, and two, you know, these people have to realize, you know, 
mall store space is expensive. I mean, when you go into the – like I was in um, Sugarloaf the other day and went to uh, Wetzer's Pretzels, and I'm looking at this little cup of, you know, hot dogs wrapped in cheese bread, and I'm just thinking mm-hmm. this isn't worth $7 and then $4 for a drink. I mean, they have to charge markup because they're probably paying three, four, five grand a month for uh-huh. that space or more. I don't know what that goes for. I don't know what it goes for, but I know this. Um, years ago, I used to work in a mall. Oh, okay. And it was the there was a sub shop or a sub kiosk next to me, and the man just when there was no customers running around, the man and I started talking. And he said to me, you know, as soon as somebody comes in here and offers me four hundred thousand dollars, I'm out. Yeah. I was like, why? Why four hundred thousand dollars? That's what it costs. I guess that's his comfort level too. You know, everybody well, has a problem. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, that's what it costs. Yeah. The more I think about that, I mean, Jesus, that was a long time ago now. Yeah, I, I don't know imagine. what it would cost now. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, you know, people need to realize that the thing that really gets me about the Savannah Mall, and I would say that right now, um, I did a three-part video series, which I don't know if you got a chance to watch that. I uploaded the links to the Reddit channel. Um, there's maybe, yeah. there's maybe at best, I would say there's maybe, maybe ten or fifteen stores that are still active. And and the thing people don't realize, the Savannah Mall opened on August 29th, 1990. We already had a mall. It was the Older Fort Mall, and it was the older mall. The Savannah Mall was considered kind of more upscale, so you had like Abercrombie and Finch, Banana Republic, and of course yeah. the Disney Store. And the ironic thing about this is, and it could be because it's further out, like towards, you know, Highway 17, but the Older Fort Mall is actually thriving a lot more because, you know, I guess Savannah really didn't need two malls, but at the time Savannah was growing, you know, we were seeing a population growth, and, you know, there was all this land out there that was supposed to become residential. It was going to be a, a residential subdivision. At the time, that proposal, at the time, that proposal was made in an unincorporated Chatham County. As, you know, as many people know, yeah. most of Savannah is in Chatham County, and, and so that's kind of where all that came from. I didn't know there was part of Savannah that wasn't in Chatham County. Yeah, well, this was, was back in Chatham. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was all in Chatham County, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I remember, um, so I, w- I went to college down there, at what they used to call Armstrong. Actually, um, Armstrong's still there, so. Well, I think they call it. Uh, Georgia, Georgia Southern or something. I think Georgia Southern bought it. Hmm. But the campus is still there, I'm sure. But hmm. okay. So, as I recall, the two malls were basically on Abercorn, right? Mm-hmm. Right there on Abercorn, right? The, there was the one mall. And, what, what'd you say? Yeah, I'd say they're probably about. Just just as a guesstimation, probably about five or six miles apart from each other. But in a city like Savannah, where everything yeah. is kind of close, close together, you know, you don't. It's not like you have a neighbor five miles down the road, you know. It's but no, in right. a city like that, that seems like a lot, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Savannah was when I lived there. It's when I figured out Savannah is a lot smaller than Atlanta. 
<laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, at least at least by a factor of ten to twenty. <laughs> well, people don't realize this. I I live in Gwinnett County, and right now mm-hmm. Gwinnett County is home to over four hundred thousand people, which pretty much dwarfs the size of Savannah, and that's just one county. Um, you know, obviously, and the other thing people need to realize when I say Metro Atlanta, Met, uh, the city of Atlanta. Metro Atlanta actually stops 55 miles north at the Dawson-Forsyth County line. So that's basically saying, like, Statesboro is part of Metro Savannah. That's how massive the, the Atlanta area is. And I know people from places like Washington, D.C. and the like will, will understand exactly what I'm talking about. But that just blew my mind because, you know, it takes about 45 minutes to an hour to drive to Statesboro. And from the city of Atlanta, I'm living in Swanee, which is about 35 miles north, and that's not even – that's that's not even half of what Metro Atlanta encompasses. It's, it just blows my mind how big this area is. And they say the city of Atlanta has at least three or four million people. Well, actually, so I've studied Atlanta demographics for ages, um, ages and ages at this point. Uh, so, you know, uh, according to Google uh, today, there are 936 – there are 900 – 36,250 uh, Gwinnett County people. Oh, okay. Gwinnett County <laughs> folks. Conservative uh, estimate on my part. <laughs> yeah. Metro Atlanta. Okay. Metro Atlanta gained a million people from the census of 2010. So, and that's a, so you're talking maybe 7 million Seven eight seven million metro. Wow, I need to brush so, up yeah. on my numbers. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I've, I've been studying this for twenty something years. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, well, I guess I guess the safe thing thing to say is, if you're not a hundred percent sure, downgrade your numbers a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, you know, I remember, I remember like um, parts of Atlanta, parts of what is today, you know, suburban. Solid suburban Atlanta, you yeah. would see straight up farms on. Oh wow! You know, straight up farms <laughs> I mean, I on. I can't ever imagine the time when that was. I moved up oh. here about '98, uh, and so yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen tremendous change. Peachtree Industrial Boulevard at the, the intersection of PIB and Lawrenceville Swanee. I yeah. mean, for at least, for at least two or three miles of that particular area was nothing but forest woods yeah. as far as the eye can see, and. You know, they've built strip mall upon strip mall upon strip mall and subdivision upon subdivision. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's just, I don't recognize the area that I started, you know, my Metro Atlanta life in, so to speak. It's just, it's, yeah. and there's still change. You know, down the street from me, they're plowing down more trees and who knows what they're putting up there. Probably another, you know, residential area, homes that start at like three and $400,000 and go up. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I remember, like, when, so I've lived in Metro Atlanta most of my life, except for a couple stints here and there. Yeah. Um, the thing that I did not realize about just my ambient environment until I moved into Savannah was that I was used to construction. Yeah. You know, I, I was used to looking out of the car and seeing, oh, okay, they're putting in a subdivision, or oh, they're <laughs> they're putting in right. this, or yeah. whatever. I remember 
when I was a boy, and I, you know, when I was a boy, a small boy, I remember going to the doctor in a town that shall remain nameless. Um, and literally they were almost building the entire town as we would, you know, drive through to the doctor's office. Hmm. You know, they were building literally almost the whole town. But it's not that way anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, the problem with Savannah is there's really not, except for the marshes going towards Wilmington Island, there really isn't much real estate in Savannah left to develop. I mean, they've pretty much developed it all. The newest thing that they were working on was the Truman Parkway. And, God, they were talking about that when I was a kid. And, you know, you're talking 40-something years later, they finally finished that last leg of it going from – all the way from Sandfly all the way to downtown River Street. And that took that took thirty that took twenty, thirty years just to really get actualized. So it's you know, Savannah yeah. you won't see much every time I I go back home to Savannah all the time. In fact I'm planning to make another trip here for the end of the year festivities. And every time I go back home everything looks the same. Now one building might change owners at you know, what used to be a Walmart might now be. Yeah. I remember when Kmarts were big in Savannah. Of course, they're all mm-hmm. gone here. And uh, I think the Kmart turned into a Home Depot and the Walmart turned into a, uh, you know, some kind of big lots or something. So other than that, yeah. the town still looks the same. You know, it doesn't change much. <laughs> yeah. I remember, um, I remember years ago um, going to Savannah years and years ago and like seeing some of the buildings and then come going back years later some of the same buildings were still there and it was like maybe the tree might have grown <laughs> the tree might have grown yeah yeah um so how did you get into metal well in high school pretty much um i was um you know i grew up in savannah so we did a lot of surfing and skateboarding and that's just kind of what you do when you live on the east coast like right you know take five steps into the you know take 20 or 30 steps off of tybee island and you're right in the middle of the atlantic ocean practically and i always thought that was cool but uh you know a, a lot of people don't realize my musical upbringing you know i started out with um kind of what the earliest uh, form of rap and hip hop were back in the late 70s, early 80s. And then, um, you know, through surfing and skateboarding, I got introduced to punk and hardcore. And metal just kind of sprang up from that and I made a switch. Um, and like I said, living in Savannah, I was kind of, I was kind of isolated because we didn't really have a metal scene. So I read a lot of Kit Parader magazines, a lot of Thrasher magazines. And a lot of times, a lot of times I'd go into a record store with, Okay, I see this picture of an album. I hear them reviewing it. I just look at the cover, look at the song titles, go, "Oh, this looks cool," and then I just I, I grab it. And so, pretty much, it was by discovery because there weren't a lot of people in Savannah that were metalheads. I mean, there was kind of a, a closet selection of us. And it yeah. wasn't until I started the music magazine that I really started getting into the Atlanta music scene because it was just frustrating yeah. for me to drive three and a half hours to go to a show in Atlanta. And then not having any place to stay, turn around and coming back, um, you know. So I decided at some point I wanted to move up there. And, of course, you know, 98 was the year I moved up to Metro Atlanta and, and everything just kind of took off from there. I think I've done more music-wise in Metro Atlanta in the last, let's say, 20 to 25 years than I had my entire life. It's just the, there's yeah. opportunities up here than there are. Well, right. 
and that's interesting you talk about rap because this you're the second person uh hardcore punk metal whatever that said well the first thing i was to do was rap but yeah that's interesting well, it was just, you know, I, I got into what was on the radio at the time. I mean, they, they weren't really playing metal on the radio down here except what was popular. And I don't know. To me, that just kind of spoke to me more. I mean, to me, it yeah. was kind of – I think somebody said I've always been into un, extreme underground music because, you know, it's just – you know, I started listening to, like, Voivod and Testament and Venom and Exodus. And, you know, you get the usual replies and comments. You know, always listening to Satanist music and – rah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And and actually, I was writing for uh, Good Times Metal, which later turned into Creative Loafing, the big newspaper that we all know. Up here. No! Really? Yeah, well, that's how I started my music magazine career, because I was writing for Good Times, and, you know, the, the guy that was running everything was getting all the good CD promos. I thought... Man, the hell of this! I can do this myself, and so I'll never forget that first package that Metal Blade Records sent me. It was like twelve or fifteen CDs and a video cassette and several cassettes, and I thought, yeah. "Wow, this is neat, man!" And, and Vibrations of Doom was born out of that in '92, um, and of course I carried it up here. It, the, the website is still in existence, um, but you know it's kind of being worked on slowly. I'm actually celebrating 30 years in 2022, and and you're you like know, the oldest. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a history. That's a history lesson right there. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's a history lesson right there. Well, let me ask because I'm a con. I guess I'm a content creator now. Yeah, oh, I okay. am. Heck yeah. yeah, I am. I have a podcast. Uh, <laughs> one of the coolest things is like random people just reaching out to me. You know, like I had a war correspondent just randomly reach out to me. I had, oh, that's awesome. you know, people. Um, just reach yeah. out to me and, you know, not to be too dramatic, but some of these people really have sort of changed my perspective of the world, honestly. No, um, I can understand that, yeah. And did you ever have that? Like, was there a moment where you're like, back in 92, like, I, I imagine for you, it was, I mean, nobody really knew what the internet was yet, and here right. you are. Running a, running a, you know, you're probably just a kid, and you're running this thing. Teenager, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have, like, people reach out to you, like, random, like, normal people? Oh, man, all the time. Um, There's several yeah. bands in the metro Atlanta area, Um, Postmortem Repugnance and Craigslist Pumps. Apparently, uh, Jason and um, I think his name was Mike, they both were fans of my music magazine from way back. And I had no idea. I meet people... <laughs> All the time that said they got into metal because of reading stuff on my site, and oh you know, here God. I am. I, yeah, here I am, isolated in Savannah when the magazine first started, and thinking that, you know, well, shoot, who's reading this? Who's paying attention? Who cares? You know, <laughs> it's just later on when I'm meeting these people. Um, I went to Prog Power um, for Falconer's last ever performance, and that was just a tearjerker. And some guy comes up to me. He's from New York, and he starts talking about. Yeah, man, you know, I'm glad they started bringing 80s metal out here. You know, I used to listen to all the classic album cuts on Vibrations of Doom. I'm like, well, wait a minute, dude. <laughs> like, Hang you know, on. <laughs> his, name is, his name is Petey Power, man, and he, he, 
he does what I'd like to do, man. He travels all over the world. He goes to all these music festivals everywhere. And, you know, I've never stepped foot out in the continental United States. So, I mean, I'd love to go to Vakken. I'd love to go to Norway. But um, well, well, know, I, here's, I, yeah. here's the thing, Chief. I mean, I, I, as far as out my physical body, right, I've been out of the country on vacation to Canada. Oh, uh, nice. Like four, like. What, three, four years ago at this point? Mm-hmm. But my voice has gone all over the world. <laughs> yeah. You That's know? one thing to think about, yeah. Oh, Canada's a good metal world. scene, man. You know, Canada had a lot of really good 80s metal bands. <laughs> yeah. That's one place yeah. I'm like, yeah, go <laughs> I mean, yeah. dude, you know, you're, you're famous. I mean, I... When you told me you did the Vibrations of Doom thing, I was like, wait, for real? Because I remember, I remember sitting up in my buddy's dorm room, uh, looking at your website, like, Man. you know, <laughs> back in the day. Seriously. Wow. Jesus. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, man, I'll tell you what I believe. I am a, I guess I'm what you would consider a modern day spiritual pagan. Um, and I hail yeah. the North Spots. Um, I believe that th- there really are no coincidences. I believe that like-minded individuals through, you know, call it hokey, but law of attraction, um, they bind together things that, things that we're interested in and we have commonalities. And it's just amazing to me the parts of the world that I've had people contact me from. I mean, I know the internet brings us all together, but, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, in, in this, in this universe that we're in, you know, you and I would have eventually met. I believe. I, I think it was it was meant to be. Um, you know, obviously there's something going on. That, you know, we yeah. can't. You know, like attracts like. So it's um, it's amazing all the. It, it's amazing, seriously, all the the people I've talked to, just and not even like the experts or the, you know, the professors or whatever. Which sure, I mean they're they're great people too. But, like, the, just the regular folk. Like, I had a lady this morning uh, talking about her uh, her book, her her children's books. Huh. And, yeah, she um, she adopted this, you know, a, a biracial kid. So she has a biracial family, and she was just noticing they don't have any biracial children's books, so I need to make some. So she huh. did. And here it is, like, she was talking to me about the world and, and the way we encountered each other was on TikTok. Oh, and I okay. saw this I saw this video that she put out and I was like, I've been wanting to talk to somebody like her for ever since I've been talking to people on oh, a podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, Cuz you know, but I mean, this world is so small. Or like how tell me, okay, I want you to tell me a story about this some story about how like you were somewhere in the world and just some person is like, hey, I, I check out your website or whatever. Yeah, well, like I said, most of it's come through uh, email correspondence. Um, I know when I met um, Rigor Mortis, who I was a huge fan of back in the day, I remember when Rigor Mortis came through Atlanta and they were playing a place called the Drunken Unicorn, which <laughs> that's about as cool a name for a club venue as you can get. And I yeah. said I was I started outside talking to Bruce, 
And I told him how cool it was that he got back with Rigor Mortis again, and they were touring and everything. And, and he said, yeah, you know, he said, back in the day, he said, when people were asking me for information on the Internet about Rigor Mortis, he said, I basically just sent them to your site because at the time that was the only, you know, now bands have their own websites and pages. So he sent the people to my classic album section. I, I guess I forgot to mention that, but uh, – you know, the classic album section has is like a, a treasure trove of rare and out-of-print 80s metal. Um, I think I've got 1,600 titles in there right now, nothing newer than Oh, 19. my God. Yeah, and it's all in real audio, so you can listen to, like, all the – you can listen to, like, full albums, EPs, 7 Inches, you know, all that kind of crazy stuff. <laughs> I'm going to give you this podcast. I'm going to give you this file, too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this file. You throw it up for yourself. Okay. <laughs> You know, you were on with the History Voyager. Jesus. Wow, I didn't, I had no idea you'd grown that bad. You'd grown that big. Well, wow. I wouldn't say big. The problem for me was that, you know, you get to a certain point in your life. I mean, I just turned 50 this past year, and I've kind of gotten to a point in my life where I realized, you know, I've been doing this music magazine for 29 years and never was able to make one thin dime. And, and you know, I, I just – my marketing skills are just not what they should be, I suppose. But, you know, you get to a point where you realize, you know, at some point you have to be – you deserve to be compensated. You know, when I, look at the, when, yeah. I look at, when I look at the music scene now and I watch these publicists, and a lot of these publicists are running their own PR campaigns out of their home. You know, and yeah. these are the guys – these are the guys that when I was in the business, they worked for Metal Blade, they, wrote, they worked for Roadrunner, Lucy Avarella, for example, does ear split PR when metal when Metal Maniacs, which is one of the biggest metal main, the biggest metal music magazines in the world, when they yeah. folded, Lucy Avarella went and what these people don't realize what these PR people do is they'll go to bands and say, Hey man, uh, you know, three or four hundred bucks, we'll run you a three month campaign. Um, you know, we'll get you in all the magazines that we have on our list, we'll send out tweets, this and that and the other. So then they come to me because, of course, I'm doing a music magazine. They say, hey, man, we got this news bite on uh, Band XYZ. You know, can you reprint news and, you know, stuff like that? And so one day I got, I guess, well, you know, if they're paying you three or four hundred bucks for a three-month campaign, you know, every time I repost a, one of your little news items on my Facebook page, you know, why don't you pay me a couple of bucks? You know, throw a couple of bucks yeah. away. And, of course, they were all like, well, you know, there's, you know, blah, blah, blah. You should do it for the music. But And I said, look, man, I said, for 29 years, I did a music magazine helping bands out, helping record labels out. And in, in return, I got nothing. You know, yeah. back in the day, back in the day, we used to at least get, you know, CDs and cassettes. And, you know, sometimes I've gotten plenty of band shirts from the label. But nowadays, it's like, and you want me to do all this music for free. And, you know, that takes work. I mean, when, when you're a one-man yeah. operation like I am, you know, you got you got to write everything down. you got to transcribe interviews, which isn't always easy when you got Australian and British and Russian accents to try to work with. You know, all that, bringing right. it up, you know, up, writing all the web code, you know, uploading <laughs> everything, you know, editing all the sound files, doing a two-hour radio show. It's like at the end of the day, there's a lot of work and there's not much coming in to compensate me for it. And that's kind of why yeah. the magazine's kind of in decline. I just kind of got to a point where it's like, well, you know, I'm just kind of trying to find other avenues because obviously the music magazine from, has never paid the bills. And that's that's kind of first and foremost in a man's life when he's, you know, getting up there in years, you know. Yeah, I get it. I get it. 
Um, but, and I know, I know, you know, I know you can't take this to a bank or to a grocery store, but yeah. I mean, you're a pioneer. I mean, you're, you know, you're a pioneer. And I, I put you kind of in the generation. So there's a guy that I talk to. Um, there's a guy I talk to. Um, he does a fictional podcast. Like, a, imagine like a radio show, like our parents and grandparents would have listened to back in the day, yeah. except it's on a podcast. Mm-hmm. It's actually really good. Like, it's really, really good. And he was talking about how I have problems. I have questions that I don't have the answer to. Yeah. And I'm all, well, dude, you are the pe- you are the person people are going to ask later. Right? Like, you are the person yeah. somebody's going to ask. So, like, you're that for him. Like, you <laughs> you are the person. I mean, in 1992, the Internet was nothing. It was it was a BBS. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, tell me. Yeah, it was, a, it was the BBS, man. It was I, – I know for a fact we got people listening. I know for a dead-level fact. I've got people on this listening here now that have no idea what BBS even means. And if if I was to tell them, really? No, really? Yeah. You know, like, Jesus. Yeah. Well, the technology technology has blown up so much. I mean, if you, you know, somebody was saying something to me the other day about if you look at the history of mankind going all the way back to the Stone Age and how long it's taken man to you know, discover electricity and actually put electricity in the proper form and practice. Yeah. I mean, really, it really wasn't until like the 50s and 60s that our technology just started growing exponentially. And, you know, I have a, a family member who, <laughs> I won't name his name, but he swears that, you know, he said if you look at our technology like lasers, you know, a pinpoint of light that can be stretched out as a finite beam, he's convinced yeah. that, that that crash back in Roswell in 47 we just basically started reverse engineering a lot of alien technology. And when you look at what we can do nowadays, I mean, I've got like a, a novel-sized hard drive sitting on my desk mm. right now that's 12 terabytes. Mm. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like a – I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I remember when Commodore 64 discs, you were lucky to get 664 blocks, not even 1K on one side of the disc. When I, I got this thing that holds, yeah. you know, probably 16,000 – Movies and 400 million songs. It's our, it's, it's, it's tremendous and it keeps growing day by day. Yeah. When I used to cut video, my one terabyte drive that I had was massively expensive. Oh yeah. Um, it was massively expensive. It was also big. Like it was big. And it was also like you had to, you had to move, move. You had to move stuff out. So we were always putting things on on uh, DVDs and oh. ta- just tape or just whatever. Like we were always doing that. And now I have so the History Voyager podcasts are sitting on this one terabyte hard drive that is thinner than a DVD case. Yeah, I know that's and crazy. It, <laughs> it's about the size. It's a little bit bigger than a deck of cards, and I'm just like Jesus. 
I know. It's insane. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I get it with the money, man. I do. I do. I get it. But because, especially because, you know, with a, these podcast providers, man, they, they, they're not telling the truth about my audience. Right. Mm. I mean, cause I'm in, I'm ranked in the top 10% in the world, you know, but I can give you like the number I can give you does not in my brain correlate to that ranking, right? Like the countable number I can give you does not rank. So like they're not telling me the truth. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, just saying. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot <laughs> going on with the technology too. I mean, you know, you look at Spotify and how they probably owe bands upwards of thousands of dollars and it's like I was reading some of those and they're like oh yeah we've got we've had 460,000 plays and, and that probably brought them about yeah. $5 in revenue you know people got to understand when when that whole Napster thing came out that was a game changer I mean Lars Ulrich was right you can you can say what you want about what they did about what Metallica did yeah. but he was right honestly <laughs> Well, he was right and he was wrong. The thing that bothers me about Metallica is they spent, and, and this is what gets me, I mean, I've got four billion reasons to hate Metallica, but my main concern is, you know, back in the early 80s, Exodus, Metallica, Testament, Death Angel, the way these bands got their start was they put their songs on a demo tape, and they sent these demo tapes to music fans all over the world for free. You know, so to me, it's like, you know, Metallica's kind of a hypocrite because, you know, there's small bands like, for instance, the band that I'm in that really could use the exposure. I mean, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it gets the music out to more people. But I understand, you know, a band's got to make a living just like anybody else does. But, you know, it's the cat's yeah. out of the bag. You know, Pandora's box has been opened, and you can't put everything yeah. back in the box. It's, well, it's like, changed the way everything is gone, and it's... It's really, you know, if I thought I had trouble trying to monetize Vibrations of Doom in the early 90s and 2000s, that task became even 20 times harder now with, with the advent of file sharing services and use, and Spotify and YouTube right. and things like that. So it's made my well, job 20 times harder to try to get it monetized. Well, I think also um, the other problem, I mean, as far as the other problem I see is like, so I'm not crying over Metallica losing money. I'm not crying over Megadeth losing yeah. money. I'm not crying over whatever. But if you think about like that other layer, like the layer, maybe not even the layer below that, but the layer below that, right? That indie band that that was rocking out that maybe back in the day would have gotten some radio play or something and maybe sold enough CDs to keep it moving. Right. I don't, you know, what are they doing now? They're on, if they exist, they're on YouTube. <clears throat> well, the game has changed yeah. a lot. People yeah. don't realize that, you know, and, and I'll quote, uh, Steve Souza from Exodus, who is a big influence of mine. Actually, when I was in Hallow's Eve, um, and he actually played a show opening up for Exodus and they were, they were all huge Hallow's Eve fans from back in the day. And Steve told me, you know, when you get on stage, man, that's your house. You know, get up there and rule your house. But he said bands today are basically traveling T-shirt salesmen. And it's merch that keeps those – I mean, Exodus obviously can do pretty well for themselves. They play 
festivals, get big, yeah. uh, big contracts. So they, in fact, I just, I was on the back of the golf cart at the golf cart mosh pit at Full Terror Assault this past year, which was truly a sight to behold. But, um, yeah, that's, I mean, merch is what yeah. bands rely on nowadays. I mean, yes, Exodus is signed to a record label, and I'm sure they get some kind of percentage from CD sales. But at the end of the day, man, when they're on tour playing in front of 500, 1,000, maybe even 5,000 people, they depend on those shirt sales, that merchandise. That's what, that's how bands make a living, you know, and it's kind of, yeah. you know, it's just how it is. I mean, you know, record right. labels never pay bands much anyway, which is why you hear about all these crazy lawsuits and, you know, Sharon Osbourne not giving the former guitar player any of his money that he rightly, rightfully deserves. And, you know, all these yeah. stories are coming out because the music industry and, and they kept a very tight lid on finances, and that's just the way it was. I mean, I did an interview with Scott Wino from uh, – he was in The Obsessed and Spirit Caravan, and he talks about how the record label screwed him out of $30,000 because they used his individual tax ID number instead of the band's. And, of course, you know, here he is, you know, between bands, and, and he's $30,000 in debt because the record label – Pretty much charging for every piece of toilet paper that he wiped with and you know, every every pen that he wrote anything yeah. with. And his yeah. wife had to get him out of that and it's like, you know, they they were they were kind of showing their mistake and the record label's like, Oh, we made a mistake. Like, oh yeah, you almost cost this man his entire livelihood, but hey man, you know, CBS Columbia Records goes on as usual, you know. <laughs> well, right. And you even have like you have um I can't remember the name. I can't remember the band name right now. Um, God damn. Uh, the guys that did only for the week. Um, they're from Scandinavia, but they don't sound like it. Um, and the drummer's from California. Well, he was. He's not the drummer anymore. But, um, he had to quit the band and get a job because he couldn't, um, you know, it's not like it was. And you look at that band and how they're opening up for, like they're they're opening these huge facilities, huge facilities. I think and you're thinking about in flames. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That was on the uh, that was on the Clayman record, I believe. He had to get he had to quit the band and, and get uh, a quote normal job. Yeah, and well, a lot of are, bands do that, you know. <laughs> yeah, but here they are, like opening huge facilities, right? <laughs> you're just like, damn. I mean, yeah, if he's hurting. Yeah, well, a lot of people need to realize, too, that, you you know, you can write great songs, you can have albums, you mm. can go out and play local shows. But the – and this was kind of one of the things that kind of mm. kind of set my band back a little bit. Promotion and publicity. I mean, I spent 30 years as a PR guy, whether anybody wants to admit that or not. You know, when I'm sitting here getting bands out there to the masses, I'm basically mm. doing – I'm doing uh, promotions and public relations. And no band on this planet will ever get anywhere. I mean, okay, yeah, we got a record deal. Well, does your record label have a good A&R department? Because if they don't, then you're kind of spinning your wheels. I mean, you know, and people think, oh, once we get paid, once we get signed to a record label, man, we're going to have it made. And the fact of the matter is you shouldn't, if, if that's your only, like, selling point, then you're doing mm -hmm. the wrong thing. The record label isn't there to boost you you should already be doing all the boosting work yourself the record label just steps in and goes well damn these guys have been touring all across the country they've got albums and they got a good merchandise campaign you know they're doing interviews they're doing radio appearances 
I mean, a record label is really yeah. all, the, all the record label for is to take what you're already succeeding at and just kind of bump you up to the next level. They're not going to make your band for you. You know, but we've all yeah. heard the stories about the, the crappiest bands that sell out arenas and the bands with talent that fold six years later. Oh, they're such a great band, but they never got anywhere. You know, it could be their location, could be that they're <laughs> doing the wrong things, it could be that they didn't have a good yeah. management team or they didn't have somebody that was you know, yeah. reaching out to people and web. I mean, because you got to believe it or not, you got to do that kind of stuff as a band. You have to. Like you even even if you're like I don't know, like even if you're the Red Hot Chili Peppers or you're the whatever. <laughs> well, even you know? the Chili Peppers started out playing in vans. I mean. You know, my mm-hmm. uncle, who was a 30-year music veteran um, in a band called the Vera Flames, he described to me the first time he ever met the Chili Peppers. This was before they even got big. He's like, yeah, the, there was like five or six of them. They were all sleeping in the van. The van was nasty. You know, they were they looked tired. They were ragged from the road. And that's what bands go through. It's not all glitz and glamour when you're in a band. It's 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 work, and you got to be willing to put yeah. the time. In. You got to be willing to do what it takes, and that means. Yeah, you might go out on the road for three or four weeks all crammed into a van because not everybody can afford to sit on Columbia Records' $30,000 tour bus, you know. It's just the, it's the reality of the situation. And, you know, a lot of times bands have to pay to get those opening slots, opening for like an Ozzy Osbourne or an Otis Fest or, a, you know, a Slipknot or, or Cannibal Corpse or what have you. Who you are know, they for paying? Long, well, for a long time there during the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. whenever black metal first came to the United States, it's like, oh, man, we're getting to see Mayhem. Well, guess what? They're opening for Cannibal Corpse because Cannibal Corpse is kind of like the gateway. Ooh, Immortals coming over here. Yeah, well, they're opening up for Cannibal Corpse. For a while, there were a lot of black metal bands that came to the States. You know, that was who was headlining, and they were bringing these guys over here. And it took probably about 10, maybe 15 years before black metal bands like Demi Borgir, Mayhem, an emperor could come over here and, and do headlining tours, you know. But like I said, that's that's the whole point of it. You got to get in front of these people's faces. You got to get the name out. You got to get the word out. You got to get people yeah. talking. About it. You know that PR is so so important, and I can't impress that upon you know young band members enough. That is right. that is kit and caboodle the main function of you as uh, a band. You got to put that time in there. Yeah. What about okay so. What would you say the Atlanta scene is mainly? Like, is it is it uh, metal, rap, country, you know, jazz? I don't know. I'm just, probably not jazz, <laughs> but <laughs> but like well, for the for the people that don't live here, what oh, would yeah. you say it is? Well, it's all kind of things, really. I mean, I kind of limit myself. We used to have a pretty big. Uh, industrial scene but i don't i don't see very many industrial bands touring anymore um you know back in the day i saw kmfdm my life with the thrill kill cult um gravity kills sister machine gun i mean i saw gravity kills and sister machine gun in a in a bingo parlor in in south carolina of all places um because you know south carolina is literally right across the bridge you know you drive you drive down river street you cross the bridge and bam you're in south carolina and that little Flamingo yeah. Bingo was literally right down the road from that, and they started hosting shows. But I, you know, I'd say there's metal here, there's punk and hardcore here. Um, you know, there's rock, there's pop, there's there's definitely rap, but uh, there's all kind of stuff. I mean, Atlanta's a big city. If there's something that you mm. like, you can find it somewhere. Um, a lot of it. There's, in fact, there's a lot of great Atlanta metal bands. 
that are mm-hmm. actually from here. Um, out of the ones I'm thinking of, um, my ex-guitar player, Ray, who used to be in my band Broken Trinity, his band Murder Van, they just got signed to a record label from Italy and released a new EP. Uh, Paladin played Prog Power a few years ago. They're an amazing band. Paladin's kind of similar to what we do. They're like a power metal band, but they mm-hmm. have some black metal vocals, whereas we're kind of doom metal based with clean sung Operetta style vocals and black metal vocals on top of that, and kind of an icy yeah. north tradition. Uh, there's Sadistic Ritual, who it's kind of funny. The, the guy Alex Parra, he's in like three different bands. He's in Gunpowder Gray, Sadistic Ritual, and Paladin. So uh, a lot of musicians in the Atlanta area. Um, a good drummer, his name is uh, Joseph Engel, and he's in. He's probably in like five or six bands. He's in like Triangle of Fire and Stone Man. Um, so, yeah, a lot of musicians, you'll find that some musicians are in, you know, quite a few bands. That's just that's just kind of how it goes up here. It's kind of like Scandinavia in a way. A lot of black metal bands in Norway have been in each other's bands and, you know, are probably still hanging, you know, passing band members back and forth. Yeah. Actually, I have a I have a friend uh, who used to be in, he used to be in bands, but not metal bands. He, he was in, I don't know what you would call them, like what the actual record label word is but i mean you know but he had a story where he was in this phase of his life where there was all these bands he was in and he felt like there was a link like a a human link between all the different bands Mm -hmm. and you know it's kind of one of those things where i say like atlanta is a small town of eight of seven million people (laughs) you know like we're a small town of seven million people (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. You know, but um, yeah. Did you have you noticed like um, are there a lot more um, I guess like people come here from all over. So have you yeah. noticed any, any cultural cross pollination with the music or like you know, you know what I'm I, talking about? I, yeah, I haven't really noticed that. Um, now of course you know as I said you know I bring a lot of. Uh, Nordic culture and influence into the lyrics that I like from Broken Trinity. Um, you know, yeah. I started out wanting I started out wanting to do a little bit of like religious history, um, you know, and things of that nature. And I started reading um, the Havamal, which is the actual words of Odin himself. And so a lot, even when I write topics about other things, Odin is usually involved in that somehow. You know, I just kind of can't get away from that. That's kind of, you know, who I am as a person. Um, that kind of had it, that kind of started out with, you know, listening to a lot of Norwegian style black metal. Um, most of the bands here are kind of, there, there's not a whole lot of what I would call trailblazers. Um, we've got bands that are just kind of doing, you know, they're just kind of doing variations of what we've, you know, mostly heard. Um, like I said, Paladin's kind of close to us because they're kind of, they're kind of different in what they do. Yeah. And, you know, we try to be as well. And like I said, there's not a lot of bands that mix traditional clean sung doom metal like Candlemass, Black Sabbath, St. Vitus with like the icy Nordic. And when I say icy, I mean like, you know, a lot of black metal to me, you know, the last three high-ended strings, high-ended notes that sounded like maybe they were crafted from ice or something. You know, it's kind of a, kind of what we want. That's that's kind of what Broken Trinity is in a nutshell. Yeah. Black and Doom. So. Yeah. Cool. Um. Hmm. Yeah, I know we kind of got off the uh, Savannah Mall thing. Well, no, we we didn't. Hey, look, the thing I love about this free range podcast situation 
is it can go wherever it wants to go. Exactly. Yeah, and, that's that was me. Yeah. And I'll tell you something, buddy. I'll tell you something. I was talking to somebody today about you, about what well, what we're doing right now, you and me. Yeah. And I was like, something about this. There's something about this that I just know. This is going to be, you know, this is going to be one of the special ones. Maybe not for today, but maybe down the road. Yeah. Because, um, okay, let's do this for, not for, uh, the present day audience, but like for the, for the people in the future. <laughs> Take me back to 1992. True. <laughs> for real. For real. Well, Take me it, back to, to 1992 and I want you to tell people that aren't even born yet like you had this first of all how were you exposed to the internet first of all like well well, you know it's kind of funny because the internet quote unquote back then was nothing like it is today um you know local local bulletin boards were basically you call up a a computer with your phone and most bulletin boards only had the ability to have one caller on at a time. So, right. um, you know, and, and we did, we, we had like official meetings where you'd have like a couple of hundred of us get together at like a computer store and, you know, we'd hang out and we'd swap software and do all this kind of crazy stuff. But, but you know, we were more of a community back then. Um, the thing about the internet nowadays is it's just kind of, it's, it's, it doesn't really foster that sense of community. I mean, the message boards, I mean, back in the day when you sent a message through the FidoNet feeds, you were lucky if you saw the reply two or three days later, whereas nowadays, you know, I can email somebody in Russia, they can email me back, I can email them again, they can email me back, and this can all occur within a five-minute window, you know. But yeah. we definitely, yeah. you know, we hung out, we swapped software, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us met each other online and started dating. I mean, I met a girl... On the, I remember when I was living in Savannah and I was chatting with a girl on a bulletin board and I was like, so where are you located at? And she's like, she gave me her address and I realized that was two blocks down from where I lived. I was like, wow, I can just walk down the street and go say hello. And so I did, knocked on the door and, and that was history. But uh, I spent a lot of years in isolation. Um, you know, I was always yeah. short as a kid. I was bullied and picked on a lot. And metal was kind of like a sanctuary for me. So... A lot of those years, I just kind of poured myself into the music, and I didn't really, I didn't really get out there, and I wasn't really very social. Um, I made a lot of dangerous mis- mistakes early on in my adult life that, uh, you know, had I not gotten help and gotten through it, I probably would have ended up dead. So, <laughs> there's many, many times in my uh-huh. life I probably would not have been here had I not been sort of guided along the right path, so to speak. But um, yeah, uh, okay. It, it, you got to remember too, man. When I was doing the music magazine, it was all for me. It's like I wasn't even concerned about the social element. It was all like constant uh, self discovery and exploration. I mean, because you know, I'd yeah. go into stores and I'd see all these bands. And I'd be like, wow, you know, and nobody knows about these. And and that's kind of where the magazine was born from. Was just the fact that there was just an extremely insane number of talented bands coming across my desk. Every single day. I mean, even to this day, you know, even though I don't do as many, I, I'm not really doing the music magazine like I used to, 
uh, there's still at least 30 or 40 albums every single week that come across yeah. my desk. And, you know, I just don't have the time to review them all. And it's like, you know, I'm kind of still trying to do a radio show. Um, yeah. My buddy, my buddy Sean, who uh, was actually my guitar player in my band, um, he's been broad, rebroadcasting a lot of my radio shows, and that's kind of what's gotten me back into it. But, um, yeah, well, 92 was kind of a rough time for me. I was kind of – I kind of yeah. lived alone. I was kind of isolated and really just poured myself into the magazine, um, you know, before I realized several years later that – I would do a lot better to be able to get out of Savannah. And that's kind of okay. what led me on my journey north. All right. So you were exposed to the Internet not through school, but through your own loneliness, for lack of a better way to say it. Well, I mean, we all had Commodore 64s, and we all were, you know, okay. and that's kind of how we met everybody was just we right. were, you know, that, that it, was a, it was a whole different subculture back then. Now, now the the – when the when the website first got rocking, right, was it on a server or was it – what was it on? Yeah, well, actually, I had a guy named um, Chris and, and his, his girlfriend, Megan Irvine. He ran the transart.com servers, at, at um, which were actually – I think they were IBM servers. So they were literally, literally on like an IBM server. And, uh, you know, back then there were no, you know, it wasn't like fancy text and graphics and sound. It was all just, you know, straight, you know, ASCII text. And um, he ran it for me for a while. Um, but I had a problem because, you know, I, I, I said, okay, I got this issue ready. He's like, well, man, you know, I got things going on. You know, I can't get to it right away. And that prompted me to go, well, geez, you know, I better learn HTML and learn how to do this myself. And yeah. um, I I had programmed in BASIC on TRS-80 Model 4s back in the day, and I just decided, man, you know what? Hopefully HTML isn't that hard to learn. So I learned the basics in a weekend, and then I started doing my own website because I realized, you know, if I'm going to do this, I can't rely. I just got to a point where I just couldn't rely on I mean, I even had guest writers, and, you know, they would always miss deadlines, and I just decided that I'd just do it all myself. And so fast forward to about 16 years after the magazine started, and my friend and I, who we had done Doom Radio in an earlier incarnation, um, sixteen. Okay, wait. Sixteen years after the magazine started, let me do some yeah. back of napkin math. Well, I'm, uh, I'm not. That, yeah, I'm not sure of the exact dates, but uh, yeah, I'm just saying. I'm, yeah. Jesus, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, this this is real history. I mean, this is <laughs> metal history. I mean, Jesus, God, thank you for answering that Reddit. Um. <laughs> You know, I'm just a regular guy who just found a niche that I could, you know, kind of throw myself into. Um, but, yeah, yeah, the radio show the radio show was supposed to be me and, and, and a guy named Chris Miller. And he came on. Like I said, we did it back in the day, but they the, the server I was on shut down, and I just abandoned it. Then when I got on, it was, it was high-end grip hosting, actually. And they yeah. had... They had given me unlimited space, so I pretty much had free reign to do whatever I wanted. So Doom Radio started back up. He did three shows with me, and then that was it. And then, you know, he never came back, and, you know, I ended up doing that solo for like 16 years. So <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, I, sometimes you just, if you don't do it yourself, you know, you're, you're probably not going to be pleased with how it turns out. So that's that's just kind of where my right. head was. Like, you know, like everything else, you know, it's vibrations of doom for 99.9% .9 of the years of its existence. 
has always been a one-man show. It's like if I don't figure out how to do it, I can't do it. You know, that was the bottom Jesus, line. Man. Jesus. <laughs> a lot of work for very little return, but, you know, it you know, is what it is. It just occurred to me, like just now, I've got a guy on my podcast now that he talks about VR, virtual reality. Oh, yeah, I love VR. Uh, I've got a guy on my, I've got a couple crypto people, you know, whatever you think about it. Well, whatever you think about it, whatever you think about it, I don't know what I think about it. I'd characterize it as my ideas about crypto have evolved. That's how I would say it. Well, let me, let me me give you some advice because I'm heavily into cryptocurrency right now and, um, I watch CNBC religiously. Um, I'm one of those people that when the pandemic went down, I, st- I thought, you know, I've got plenty of time. You know, my friend John, who um, I've been friends with ever since I was a teenager, and keep in mind, this guy graduated from high school with my mom, and he's still my best friend to this day. He he was telling me for years that I need to get into the stock market, and I said, well, you know, I hear the horror stories and everything and this and that and the other, and so he finally convinced me, so um, – Last August, I got into the stock market, and I did really well. But then again, you, if you buy stocks during a pandemic, everything's on sale. So I was kind of spoiled in that I got in at the right time. Um, the challenge now is trying to keep that going because, you know, you realize that you have to follow earnings reports. You have to read quarterly. You have to know when uh, companies are going to report their earnings. And, you know, you're, yeah. you, you're putting money into a stock that you feel like you've bought near the bottom – and you're waiting like two and three months for the price to rise significantly enough for you to take profits. Whereas cryptocurrency, you know, an Elon Musk tweet will send Dogecoin up 21% in a day. And, you know, it's very volatile, but if you want to make good money, cryptocurrency is the way to do it. You just, just make sure you do your homework and know the highs and the lows of whatever cryptocurrency you're investing in. It's risky, but that, you know, like they always say, great risk comes great reward. Okay, but like I was saying, or like I was trying to say, it just occurs to me I've got all the – I've got a man, an older man, who's talking about his career in computers, and we're probably going to finish that out someday. But I'm just it's just occurring to me that accidentally I'm touching the information age, like the whole breadth of it, just about it, yeah. or all the living people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like – I can't go back to before, like, I can't go back to teletypes, I don't think, but. Oh, exactly, yeah. Well, once the technology opens up, I mean, I I keep thinking the times when I had to drive to Atlanta and try to find the masquerade by myself and the times I kept getting lost, it's like, I just turn on my phone and it says, turn left, turn right, here you are. I'm like, wow, you know. So the thing I've noticed (laughs) is, and I don't know when I noticed this, like, I don't know when I actually thought this out. But the thing I see is, like, there's a lot of what I call, um, you know, Google-created traffic games. Like, Google telling people, go down this road. <laughs> and so everybody does. <laughs> Are you using yeah. Google Maps? Well, yeah. Okay, well, uh, yeah. I, can tell you right now, I can tell you right now, that's your first mistake. <laughs> okay. Because I use Waze. I use Waze, and Waze is really good, W-A-Z-E. I use that religiously because not only does it reroute you, I've had it literally, and anybody that's ever driven an I-75 and 85 in Atlanta knows, 
one traffic accident is all it takes to make eight lanes of highway come to a, a practically a, a, a standstill. And Wade has literally pulled me off the highway onto an access ramp, put me back on the highway, and when I get to that stretch of highway, I look behind me, and I see the accident, and I see where all the cars are backed up. Um, plus, yeah. two, I got, plus two, I got to mention, with Waze, you know where the cops are up to like four and five miles away. So, <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, anyway, yeah, so I don't know, but it's just so interesting to me, this world we live in. It's like, it's like years ago, it's like, okay, I'll tell you the truth. I'm a big fan of uh, the Winnipeg Jets. They used to be the Atlanta Thrashers. Big oh. fan. So I did a, um, a cross-promotion podcast uh, with a young man who does a – or I think he did. I don't think he still does it. But he did a very, very good podcast about hockey up there in Manitoba. And at the end of the show, it occurred to me, I can remember when we would have used this technology to talk about heart disease. It's something curing cancer, right? Something important, something, you know, big. Here we are, two fans of the same team talking. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, well, I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, we as, we as a collective humanity, you know, it's really sad in this day and age when, we're letting our differences divide us instead of letting our likes and similarities bring us together. I mean, you saw a yeah. lot of that in the presidential campaign the last, not even the last four years, like the last eight and 16 years. It's like, you know, instead of right. concentrating on what brings us, what makes us similar, we're, we're concentrating on what makes us different and we're letting that divide us. And it's like, yeah. this, is, this is not the America I grew up in, not by a long shot. It's like, I don't know, man. I had this young man. I, I suppose I can say this because it's on the air. I mean, I'll put, I'll put the show out. I had a young man tell me about this situation in Bosnia, or the, the war in Bosnia. And I don't know, man. I, I've heard so many, so many crazy stories just since last, just since March 2020. I've yeah. heard so many crazy stories. I just, just don't, don't have patience. Believe, yeah. I just don't have patience for the for the chuckle headed stuff. I just don't. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah. But hey, man, I, I feel like we could talk forever. And, yeah, we could. <laughs> yeah, we probably could. And I tell you what, honest God, man, for real, I would love to have you back on. I would. Oh. I would love to. Oh, I'd be honored um, to be man. Anytime, just let me know. Oh my God, um, I feel honest to God, I feel like I'm talking to maybe not Wilbur Wright, but <laughs> somebody right after that. Um, well, some oh, people geez. might call me Wilbur wrong, but you know, <laughs> yeah, for real. But I'm just saying, like you're that pioneer. You, you've been in this content creation game a long time, son. Yeah, long time. And it's an honor to talk to you because, man, I, I read your website for for years back in the day. It's an honor to talk to you. All right, now you don't make me start crying, man. Cut that out. I mean that. I mean that. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I really do. You know, I I, I I've always told people that 
Um, you know, cause I'm, I'm trying to take this band thing to the next level. And one of the things that always frustrated me was, I mean, I met Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails and I, I I'll mm. try not to say anything. Yeah. Well, he was not, let's just say he was not a very high person to me. Um, and I just can't understand these people. It's like, you're up there living the dream, man. You should be grateful. I'm always grateful. And I even tell my audience every night and, and I'll close with this. Whenever I'm on a stage, usually my somewhere in the middle of my dialogue is, you know, you've got four million choices for nightlife in Metro Atlanta, and you chose to spend your time with us, and we greatly appreciate that. And I hope that there never comes a day when I take that for granted. I'm always grateful to the people who have taken an interest in my, you know, somewhat small and, and somewhat interesting career. I'm always grateful, man. Gratitude is, like, the biggest thing to for 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 those of you that want increase in your life that want to see more in your life and better in your life yeah. start practicing gratitude and not just saying I'm grateful but feeling you know where it resonates from your heartstrings man I mean once yeah. you get into that mode of being grateful you'll see that the door is just they're, they're not open they're kicked open and pretty much removed yeah. from the vengeance and that's what it's all about man we're all looking for success um yeah. and there are things in life that you can do to increase your success and just you know, it it comes along with that spiritual territory that I talk about all the time. You know, um, looking to our ancestors and the wisdom that they had, and realizing that the spiritual teachers of today, you know, they're tapped into that ancient current, that ancient current of wisdom. You might call them sages or soothsayers or prophets or oracles, but they understood how the universe works and the and the, ener- the energetic vibrations that permeate everything that lives and breathes in this universe. And we're all a part of that. And you can tap into that and make that work for you. Well, thanks a lot, Steve. Um, well, thank you, man. Thanks a lot. Hang on the line with me. I want to I put something here. But, hey, everybody, uh, like I say all the time, uh, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. And... uh Thank you very much, Steve, for coming on my show. Thank you. It was an honor.